Alrighty. Um, some of you may not have been here. Last time I taught on naps, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, I didn't write it out here, but can anybody remember what the acronym NAPS stands for? We're talking about the attributes of scripture. Necessity. Necessity. Woo! Oh! No, I can't spell necessity. N-S-C. N-E-S-C. If, if, you're, if you're a professor and you don't know how to spell something, just write it illegibly, and then nobody can tell the difference. Uh, what's, what's the A? Do you remember the A? I'll give you a clue. This derives because of its source. Authority. Right. Authority. Authority of Scripture because it comes from God. It's not merely man's observations of, of the works of God. Now, this one was... The, ding, 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 ding. Yes. Perspicuity, also known as clarity. And the last one is... Sufficiency. That's right. All right. So what we're talking about is big T versus small T tradition, which is really sort of a, a working out our, our subcategory of uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. So uh, during the era of the Reformation, the issue underlined the controversy uh, between the Roman Catholics and Protestants. There's a gazillion of them. Uh, but really underlying it all was the issue of the Scriptures as the sole inerrant and infallible authority for faith, that is doctrine and practice morals, Versus the Roman Catholic Church's contention that the scriptures, tradition, and the magisterium, which is the Pope in conjunction with the cardinals, when speaking authoritatively from the chair of Peter, or ex cathedra, on any issue relating to faith and morals. Um, in this lesson, we will look at the Bible's teaching on tradition in both a positive and negative fashion and develop a definition of tradition from scripture. Then we will briefly look at the different and conflicting uh, do- definitions of Roman Catholic doctrine of tradition, or actually, we may get in that fairly soon. Um, so, what your fir- I'm working on names today. First name, Clarence. Cl- so Clarence, Harry, Jeff, Eric, uh, Melissa, Michael, and Yvonne. Yvonne, Yvonne, Yvonne. Okay. So, as new people come in, I'm going to start working on people's names. I'm not really, really bad at this. Um, all right. Um, just said it. <laughs> Clarence, can I get you to read on page 2, Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 to 6, nice and loud so we can all hear it? Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of the tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks before of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. And he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So the, the Greek word paradosis, the form there is paradosin. And Harry, can I get you to read uh, Colossians 2.8 from the Apostle Paul? <coughs> See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the tri- according to the ele- elementary principles of the world, 
rather than according to Christ. So typically, I mean, evangelicals, we, we, run, we run into uh, Roman Catholics, and they talk about the necessity of tradition and the magisterium, and then we get into this proof text, Bible war, and then we quote these two particular passages, but we don't really understand what the word tradition means, and then they're going to respond with a positive word, uh, the use of the word tradition. Uh, Eric, can I get you to read 2 Thessalonians 3.6 there for me? Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So here Paul is, is commanding to hold on to a tradition which they received from the apostles. So the Roman Catholic assertion is that they're holding on to apostolic tradition, which is handed down by word and, and, and practice, um, not to the traditions of men or human source tradition. Now, this issue of tradition, what tradition is, is not only a matter of debate between Roman Catholics and Protestants, it also is a matter of conflict between uh, Protestants, uh, evangelicals, which contributes to the why we've got a lot of uh, denominations which have certain practices in which they believe are allowable, and others will say, no, that's forbidden, you're being like the Roman Catholics. And so it's, it's important not only for, for understanding Roman Catholicism, but even between um, conflicts within evangelical Protestantism. So, at um, the top of page three, the Roman Catholic contention is that there are traditions of men that are forbidden, and then there is tradition that is handed down from Jesus and the apostles apart from Scripture. However, depending on who you ask, Rome is not uh, in complete agreement with itself on the definition of this second form of tradition. There is uh, a debate between James White and I believe it was Father Pacwa on the issue of Sola Scriptura. And in the question and answer time period, someone asks uh, this very question, the definition of tradition, and the response was, we don't know which one it is, and we're waiting for the Pope to tell us. And we're okay with that. So here's two definitions. Um, one is, tradition is the non-written word of God which has been transmitted by word of mouth by Jesus Christ and the apostles, and which has come down to us through the centuries by the means of the church without being altered. It's an interesting thing, if you know anything about Gnosticism, Gnosticism also claimed to have revelation from Jesus and the apostles, which wasn't found in, in the scriptures. And so they put themselves up as super apostles, that if you really want to know what Jesus said, you need to come to us. Well, the second definition is, the, ta the tradition is the task of, authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, which has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, that's what they call the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. So then the second definition that they tend to use is tradition is the authoritative interpretation. And so if you ask uh, a Roman Catholic, um, I listen to Roman Catholic radio all the time, there's a guy that comes up at five o'clock named Father Carapi, uh, who actually like him personally, um, and there's things I can agree with him on. Um, but if you ask him, why do you believe in this particular doctrine of practice? He says the bottom line is because the church, Roman Catholic Church, says so. The Roman Catholic Church says Matthew 16 uh, teaches that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built, and that office has been handed down to the popes. That's what the church says. What that passage means, therefore, that's what it means, because. Only um, in the Pope can you find the office of Peter. So it starts and begins with a presupposition of that the only Roman Catholic Church can interpret the Bible. 
Therefore, this is what this text means. Therefore, this supports the original premise. It, that's, that's sort of the circularity of it. But when you look at these two um, definitions, one is saying that it's, the apostle Paul said such and such, pass it on. And then the next one was, Jesus said such and such, pass it on. And then it keeps going on. And they claim that they have teachings that can't be found in Scripture, but these have been passed on by word of mouth, pass it on. You know, <laughs> okay, and that's their under, that their one definition of tradition, and then their other def- definition is this one that it's the authoritative interpretation of scripture. So I can spend more time on that, but yes, Michael. Um, just you know, just to think it through and explore it. I mean, I guess uh, to be fair to the Catholic Church. Sure. Um, we do see examples of that, right? Where you have teachings of Jesus that weren't necessarily preserved in Scripture, but then Paul talks about it, right? Like mm-hmm. he'll say, you know, this is a word from Jesus, like in Corinthians. Sure. Right? Well, right. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't write any of the Gospels, so even right. the words we have of Christ in the Gospels come Our from, right? yeah, yeah are come from the apostles. So there's but a lot. Know, so the Roman Catholics are basically saying that all that set of teachings that aren't preserved in Scripture, they still have it. Right, right. So uh, I think it's in John 21, I'm going off the top of my head, where Paul, or John says, um, and Jesus taught more, I'm paraphrasing, if Jesus taught more things than this, and if they were to be written around, the books would fill the earth. There's a rough, that's a sure, sort yeah, of all a... all the libraries in the world. Right, right, something to that effect. Um, and so they can claim, well, we have those libraries in our, in our old tradition. Now, I could spend a lot more time on that, but really I want to get, want to get into what is a biblical definition of tradition. Um, and this, I, there's a lot more that can be said than when I've gotten here. And I'm, I plan on, I have written a um, sort of a presuppositional defense of Sola Scriptura. And I'm, and I'm going to re-edit it and rework it and, get it and get, hopefully get it published. It's being translated into Portuguese down in Brazil uh, and being published down there. I just, I need, like to get and anyway, so I'm going to work out a whole chapter on uh, on this subject. So these are just some of the initial thoughts on the issue. So if um, if you have questions or comments or response later on, and, and while you want to correct me on something, well, what about this? What about that? I'm totally open to f- good feedback. Um, okay, Scripture's definition of tradition. So what is this word paradosin? The di- and oftentimes when people want to know a definition of a word, they go to a dictionary and pull out a few um, lexical meanings that'll suit their purposes and say, this is what it means. But words have meaning in how they're used uh, in their narrow and sort of broader context. Um, I think the NIV, although NIV, not necessarily always the best translation, gives us a good uh, translation or helpful translation. When it says this, um, Melissa, can I get you to read that passage there for us? So this is the NIV's translation of this, and, and a lot of Roman Catholics complain that we're, it's just a Protestant uh, translation trying to get away from this. But I think it is a helpful way of looking at it. The difficulty is, is the way, the problem is the way in which we think about teaching. Most of us think about teaching is exactly what we're doing right now. You got a professor or a teacher standing up here, he gives a lecture, you take notes, you then take a test with a fill out a Scantron, you know, keep your little marked within the bubble. You have a midterm exam, you have to do a term paper, and then you get a grade at the end. And this is not a uh, biblical meaning of teaching or, or tradition 
uh, or how God, Jesus, and, uh, and the apostles taught and equipped people for the ministry, which we're going to get into. So um, I would, in, if you go to a seminary in, in the MDiv program, one of the requirements they have is you're supposed to be getting additional instruction from your local church, your local pastor. The local pastor is supposed to bring you under their wing and help you learn part of this. But unfortunately, a local church uh, near a seminary often has 10, 15 uh, seminary students, and uh, the pastors don't really have the ability to mentor the way that they should. So a lot of, I knew guys that were in seminary, they would go to a church 40 miles away so they could get more one-on-one interaction with a pastor as they're going through seminary. So, in short, uh, the word paradosin or tradition simply means teaching. However, the problem is what the Bible presents as God's ways of teaching, Jesus' ways of teaching in his earthly ministry, and the apostles' means of teaching in their epistles and earthly ministry is radically different from uh, the ways in which we think of it and as we are taught in schools, colleges, and seminaries. So, uh, top of page four, um, tradition or teaching is uh, the argument I would make is paradosin is teaching by word and action. The word paradosin has a particular emphasis on the action. There's another Greek word didaskalos, uh, which has more emphasis on the verbal, but it too um, has the the uh, the action. So there's I, I could go through the Old Testament and give you a gazillion examples of this. Um, so time does not permit us to look at and consider all the examples of how the tradition or teaching is conveyed throughout redemptive history. But throughout most of history, believers did not have a copy of the Bible for themselves. Think about it. But throughout most of history, believers, uh, uh, excuse me, but the word of God was conveyed in oral teaching, uh, particularly later in the Old Testament with the Levites who had a copy of the, of, uh, of the word of God in the synagogue. And the people of God knew the word because they memorized it sang and chanted it in a rhythmic fashion, and the teaching was lived out through various actions, uh, such as signs and symbols, which we might call sacraments, holy days and feast days and, and festivals, and what I think of as the drama of the sacrificial system um, with the prescribed liturgical calendar. So there was a verbal teaching, but then that verbal teaching is reinforced by actions, all kinds of actions. Um, so it's not just a matter of a lecture, uh, but it was actions. And so, and, and you think about this: we do this not only with doctrine and faith and practice, but we do this um, with practical things as well. If you're going to be a carpenter, it's not just a matter of someone telling you how to hit a hammer with a hit a nail with a hammer. You have you work alongside in a tutorship, a mentorship, an apprenticeship with a carpenter who shows you how to do things. Same thing when you teach your children how to eat properly at the dinner table. You don't just tell them, you know, use your fork and your knife and your napkin and don't chew with your mouth full, okay? Or don't eat with your mouth full. Yes, you chew with your mouth full. Don't eat, talk with your mouth full. You show them how to, yeah, you show them how to do this. So not only we do this sort of everyday things, but this is also how uh, the commandments of God and the Christian life, the gospel even, is conveyed. So uh, we see then that God taught and commanded by his word and actions such that if the covenant child asks the parent, why do we keep the Sabbath? It's interesting. There are questions in the Bible that are from the child to the parent. And we take catechism. We turn it the other way around. Is The parent 
ask the child a question, and the child's supposed to give the answer. In in, in the Bible, we see ch- children in the midst of the the, belie- the life of the believer going, "Mom, Dad, why do we do this?" And then the parents supposed to tell them why they do this and what this means, and so they're teaching them by word and action. So, and the answer would be not simply because God said so, although the authority of God saying do something is, an, is sufficient, but rather because, as we read, God commanded to do so, for he too worked six days and then rested. So, we, you can see that we're supposed to be imitators of God in his what's called communicable attributes. Now, that we can't be omnipresent, omniscient, and, and, and those, those are attributes of God we can't imitate. But we're supposed to be what as God is what? Be ye holy as God is holy. So in a creaturely fashion, we're to be holy as he is. Well, how do, how do you know God is holy? Well, he says so, but also you got to look at what he does and how he responds. So it's always word and example. So teaching or tradition then is always by word and example such that the action reinforces what is being taught or commanded. The people of God were to keep the commandments and be kind towards their, their, the sojourners because God said that they were once slaves and sojourners and delivered them, excuse me, I got a typo here, uh, from bondage and was hospital towards them. Um, this was how the fathers were to teach their children so that when they asked, what does the word of God mean to you? They would respond um, by re- recounting the saving Actions of God. Uh, Tommy, can I get you to read that next passage? Is it Tom or Tommy? Or? Tommy. Tommy, okay. Good. Is this when, when your sons yeah, bottom of page four. Okay. When your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt. Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out of out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which yes, born to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for all our good always and for our survival as it is today. There will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of his commandments before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Now notice the command isn't just command. It's God does something first. The God, he is patient towards us. He is merciful towards us. Um, he is long-suffering. He is, you know, all these other attributes of God towards us, and therefore, and the consequence is, now we are supposed to be the same way towards our neighbor, towards the strangers, and so forth. So it's always by from God Himself, word and example. So they were to be patient or long suffering because God said so, and because God was patient towards them. They were to be forgiving of each other because God said so, and because God forgave uh, them. God does not merely say to us, do such and such. He provides for us an example by demonstrating those communicable attributes in His own actions. And there's a gazillion examples we could spend all day throughout the Old Testament doing this. So this teaching by word and action can be seen in the cleansing rites that teach us something about the inherent nature of sin. So there's a lot of uh, cleansing rites or washings or baptisms that are conveying a message. Um, And so it was something they were doing all the time. 
And the repetition of the sacrifices, the, the repetition of the holidays, the repetitions of the feast, the repetition. So if you were to actually take a calendar and look at what was required, this was going on all the time. It was part and parcel of the life. There's no separation between everyday life and the faith. They didn't compartmentalize their faith and their everyday life and, and how they, their civic duties and everything else. It was all one uh, uh, together. And so there's something about the cleansing rites, um, the being unclean, um, that is associated with uh, depravity, such that um, what it conveys is from your very beginning, from your very birth, and the way in which you come into this world, you come into this world unclean. Your body, because of its fallen nature, is unclean. And so you're required, uh, the requirement of this, sort of this, of this baptism. Um, the actions, yes, Michael. So... Um trying to wrap my mind around yeah so what you're saying is tradition is a bigger maybe more holistic term than just simply like mental facts correct but it's like life and practice it's like the doing of godly life right and not just like knowledge right right and so and but teaching is too teaching isn't just conveyance of information right it's word and practice like right tradition right right so Anyway, so the repeated memorial feast days are historical reenactment of the redemptive, should be work of God, I got a typo there, so that we are, to observe the Lord's Supper, we are in a sense reliving the original historical event. Uh, uh, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, or break it, and this is King James, and gave unto them saying, this is the body in which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me, Luke twenty-two nineteen. In the Hebrew, the, the word for remembrance, it's a car. is isn't just a matter of, okay, I'm coming home from store. I need to get some groceries. And I said, what if I got in my refrigerator? I said, I need some eggs. I need some milk. I need some cheese. I need some butter. I need some, oh, I'm running out of toilet paper. i got to get some toilet paper. You know, it's not just a matter of a cognitive act. But it's in this reenactment of the redemptive historical event, we are learning the gospel. Okay? So, um... I have friends that are involved in this. They don't like to use the word civil war. Civil war, reenact, war reenactments, and this part of a whole club. And they, go, and they put on the uniforms, and they have the guns, and they put in the powder. They don't have a, an actual propeller. They have cannons, and, and they set up this camp, and, and then they, they do this whole war thing. And so they aren't actually shooting each other. They aren't actually killing each other. They aren't going back to Gettysburg. You're not, they're not going back to where the events actually took place. But there's a certain amount of continuity uh, so that you get a sense of the experience of what it was really like back then. Well, there's the same way in when they would have the, the festival of first fruits, they would have the festival of tabernacles, they would have the Passover. They were reliving an event of their forefathers. And yet, when this phrase, I am the Lord the God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, I counted once, it's something like, I, I don't remember exactly, it was like 95 times throughout the Old Testament. It might be more than that. But here's the funny thing, is future generations... God could tell them, I brought you out of Egypt. Now we might go, wait a minute, no you didn't. I was born here. I was born, I wasn't born, never even been to Egypt. That was my great, 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 great grandfather that was brought out of Egypt. No, 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 no. You're part of that event way back then, and you're part of it by your reenactment of, it, of the keeping of the Sabbath, keeping of the Passover, and so forth. It, there's this tie, there's this historical tie. So in the same way, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there's this historical tie that we're doing this in remembrance of him, even though we weren't there. 
Okay, so there's this relationship. Between them. And the, so we're learning the gospel, not only in what's proclaimed, but in what's done. Okay, so the tradition and teaching of remembering Christ is not merely a mental cognitive process, but a historical reenactment in which the gospel, that is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, is lived out in action. This is why Peter is confronted by Paul when his actions of siding with the Pharisees contradicted the gospel that unites Jew and Gentile in Christ at the table without circumcision. And we find that in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. And the Corinthians were being judged because their actions towards one another in the church contradicted the teaching of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. For in it, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming something. We're not just remembering. We're also proclaiming something when we're eating of the Lord's Supper. And so the problem with Corinth is they were doing one thing and proclaiming something different in the, in the, proclama- in the, in, in the eating of the Lord's Supper. And for that, they were being judged. So the good news is supposed to be proclaimed in verbal proclamation, that is in word, and action, that is in the eating and the drinking. Okay, so, um, time have I got? Okay, uh, I'll just read this text here, and I can spend a lot more time on this. One of the clearest examples is, if, is God teaching um, his people in the Old Testament by word and action. We have uh, Jesus, which we'll get into in a minute, teaching by word and action or example, and the Apostle Paul, and the way he taught his sons, Timothy uh, and Titus. He referred to them as his sons in the faith. And John also, First um, uh, John chapter 2, says, uh, My ch- dear children, I write this, that you may not sin. So there's this, like, in the discipleship relationship between the, the um, discipler and the disciplee, is it like a father and son relationship. He says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They deny its power not only in terms of verbal, but in their very actions. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and John Brays opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, <coughs> rejected to the faith. But they will uh, not make any further progress for their folly is obvious to all, just as Jonas and John Brays follow uh, was also. And this is to the turning point. Now you, he's talking about them, now he's talking about his disciple, Timothy, but now you followed my teaching. The Greek word is didaskalia. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Okay, so notice, you, know, you uh, he didn't just say like, okay, you believed and repeated my teaching. You follow my teaching. By word and example. So here's Timothy, sort of following the shadow of, of the Apostle Paul, and, as, and they're talking. Just like Jesus, as he travels with the disciples, he's talking and doing, talking and doing, t- talking and doing. 
and the doing is 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 backing up by example uh, the teaching. And so um, the Apostle Paul, the the Rabbi, you might think of of uh, Timothy and Titus, does this same sort of thing. And it's from there that he goes in to talk about uh, to hold on to that which he's had from his childhood, knowing whom from he's learned from in verse fourteen. Knowing, uh, um, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So this scripture isn't just a bare verbal head of sentence knowledge but it's backed up by the teacher's um, ex- example. So um, he would... Timothy and Titus would know how to be elders, would know how to be evangelists by Paul's example. They would know how to be teachers by Paul's example. They would know what to teach by uh, word and example by following the Apostle Paul. Okay. Um, now, page seven. I want to get into commanded tradition, permitted but not commanded tradition, and then forbidden tradition. And I, I could spend a lot more time on this, but I'm going to keep this short. In short, the tradition, that is big T, that is required, are those teachings and actions that are commanded by God, exemplified by Jesus and the apostles, which are recorded in Scripture. These include loving one's neighbor as Jesus did, baptizing and observing the Lord's Supper as the apostles taught and practiced, and so forth. There's a lot more to that. Then there are what we think of as permitted, but not commanded tradition. And this is where we're probably going to bump heads with a lot of our fellow Protestants, Evangelicals, Reformed, Baptists, Lutheran, whatever else. In short, tradition, that's a small t, that is permitted, are those teachings and actions that are allowed by God, exemplified by the saints of the Old Testament, Jesus and the apostles, which are recorded in the scripture. This would include celebrating the redemptive work of God in the festival of Purim, which I think is this month. I think, I think it's in the 21st. I don't know, I'll have to look it up. In which God providentially saved his people through his faithful actions of Esther. Okay, so what the people had learned is God does something redemptive. He does something creative, and then there's a way of observing it. He does something redemptive in the covenant of grace, and then it falls in observance. And then we have, during the time of the exile, the story of, of Esther. Um... And so the people's response is, after they've been saved uh, from destruction um, due to the actions of Esther, is, this was great. We've been saved. We, we haven't been killed. This Haman wanted it, or Haman, wanted us to have us all killed. But Esther stood up, and, and she put her neck on the line before, before the, the king. And now we've been saved, saved from this. We want to remember this was a great event. So what are we going to do? We're going to... We're going to create a holiday. It wasn't commanded, but uh, it's something that. So uh, Esther chapter nine, verse eighteen to nineteen, and there's one name I haven't called in it. I'm trying to remember it again. Yvonne. Yvonne. You know, I was thinking Eva, so I was, I was kind of close. <laughs> Yvonne. Yvonne. Uh, can I have you read uh, Esther nine, verses eighteen to nineteen? Of 
Okay, so the life of the believer revolves, in terms of the life meaning the year, what you do throughout the year, it revolves around a calendar. And there are prescribed dates uh, and festivals and f- that are also, uh, also have um, agricultural significance as well that God prescribed. So they added a holiday to the calendar to remember the providential act of God, which, interesting, God's not even mentioned in the book. It's sort of like uh, R.C. Sproul calls it the, uh, un- the invisible hand. Of, of providence, and you know what? God de- God doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't say that's wrong. I didn't give you that holiday to command. The, rather, they're sort of observing what God has done with redemptive acts and creating holidays. And so we we're going we're to have a holiday uh, in Jewish tradition. They what they do is they read through the Book of Esther, and every time you come to uh, the name of uh, Haman, everybody goes boo boo boo, and then they have like noisemakers, and every time you come to um, uh, Mordecai, everybody goes, yay, and they make all kinds of noise. It's, it's a very noisy event. Uh, that would be fun. That would be fun to do. Maybe not necessarily in the corporate worship service, but one of these days, it would be something would be fun to do. Um, so, and likewise, in the New Testament, the celebration of Passover with wine was not commanded in the institu- institution of Passover. There's no command in having wine with the Passover. And yet it was observed by Jesus and incorporated into the, Lord, into the Lord's Supper by Jesus himself. Of course, now that Jesus has <coughs> incorporated wine into the sacrament, it's not merely permitted, but commanded. But the fact that Jesus did not oppose this non-commanded practice demonstrates the celebration of the salvation of God can include more than, though not less than, what God requires. And this is the stipulation. So long as it does not want incorporate pagan practices or contradict the clear teaching of God's word. And that's where we're going to get in the next one. Forbidden tradition, the top of page eight. So there's something that's commanded and required. There's something that can be permitted and not prohibited. So what would make it prohibited or forbidden? In short, forbidden tradition, that's any small t or a big claim to big t, that is forbidden. Are those teachings and actions that contradict the teaching of God, such as when we read in Matthew chapter five in which Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard it said, and then he quotes a tradition of the Pharisees, and then he provides a correct teaching and practice and says, but I say to you. If you go through Matthew chapter 5, and you know how you have these, proof te- these footnotes that tell you where to find verses and stuff in the margins? If you look at all the passages where it says, you have heard it said, he's not quoting the Old Testament. There are a lot of false teachers today that say Jesus threw out the law of God, the commandments of God, and they'll cite Matthew chapter 5. See, Jesus is contradicting the, the, the commandments of God. No, he's not. He is contradicting the tradition of the Pharisees. So a, a, a forbidden tradition would be something that contradicts uh, the commandments of God. Or a forbidden tradition is the incorporation of, preg- p- of pagan practices and doctrines, such as when the Israelites incorporated the worship of the Egyptian god Hapis, that's the golden calf. Um, the fifth plague in Egypt was against the cattle um, in the uh, ten, ten plagues on Egypt. Well, the fifth one of, of uh, destruction of the cattle was in response was a destruction of um, of, the, of the Egyptian god uh, Hapis. In fact, all of the plagues are against the gods of Egypt. But that's another lesson. So, uh, in Exodus thirty-two, verse four and following, um, they say, "Hey, this is the god that brought you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh." And yet, they do is they take this golden calf, the image of the Egyptian god, and they say that's Yahweh. 
So what they've done is they've incorporated pagan practices into their worship. It's not like they're abandoning wholesale the commandments or worship of Yahweh, but what they do is they blend them. And if you go throughout the Old Testament, what's the repeated practice, uh, go through Chronicles, is, yeah, they have the worship of Yahweh at the temple, but they also worship uh, Esheroth and Molech and Baal. And it's this blending or religious syncretism, which, again, a whole other lesson is the whole purpose of these very distinct distinctions between us and them, this holiness laws, is to keep a radical difference, is you are not to be like them culturally, religiously, and so forth. Um, so, forbidden tradition is um, those things which contradicted the commandments of God, or a syncretism of pagan practices. So, much of what is taught and practiced in the Roman Catholic Church comes not from scripture, but from Neoplatonic philosophy, that seeped into the early church and the incorporation of the metaphysics of Aristotle from the Middle Ages. Now, I could spend a whole lot of time from that, but whereas the Jews were incorporating Baal worship, Molech, and, and so forth in the Old Testament, um, and then they developed traditions of the Pharisees which contradicted the commandments of God, um, a lot of church history has been this tendency to incorporate Greek philosophy or to incorporate pagan practices. So, um, I'm out of time. Um, one, I had a, there is, in 1 Timothy 1.6, Paul says, For this reason I found mercy, so that uh, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So I have a little lesson there. In your reading of the Gospels, try to think about this, maybe throughout this week, think of three examples in which Jesus teaches, not just by word, by example. Is there anything that comes immediately to your mind? In which he does something and then expects his disciples to do so. That could be one. That could be one. What about, remember, thinking about the, remember the fish washing? He gets down, he, he sets an example. That he didn't turn into a sacrament, but he says you're supposed to do this as well. So... Last page, um, big T tradition versus small T tradition. Both Protestants and Roman Catholics recognize that we have traditions, small T, that we do not consider infallible and errant and unchangeable. There are cultural traditions and customs such as having a birthday cake to celebrate someone's birth or exchanging rings to signify one's wedding vows. There are also ecclesiastical or church traditions and customs such as pastors not being allowed to be married after the ordination in Roman Catholicism. And teachings that are amenable are called disciplines, such as the prohibition of eating meat on Fridays, which was changed at Vatican II. So, even Roman Catholicism, they have big T tradition, which cannot change, and they have small T tradition, or they call disciplines that can change. Um, likewise, there are in the Westminster tradition of Presbyterianism, which there, there have been changes, um, such as the assertion that the Pope is the Antichrist. So the difference is they, claim, they will claim a lot of big T tradition, which isn't found in Scripture. You can't find in Scripture um, that they claim will be handed down by um, the apostles. So there are also things which Roman Catholicism asserts as big T tradition in doctrine and practice, which, Roman, which, excuse me, which historical Protestantism views as contradicting Scripture and are the result of incorporating extra-biblical documents, such as the Apocrypha, uh, results in their doctrine of purgatory, and Greek philosophy into the church, which results in the doctrine and practice of transubstantiation. 
um, of the body and blood of Christ into the Eucharist, the, that is the bread and uh, in the Lord's Supper. They bl- metaphysically, literally, it's no longer bread and wine. They do not want you to call it bread and wine because it's not. It's literally the body, body and blood of Jesus Christ. So it appears, <coughs> outside, according to them, it appears to be bread and wine, but in actuality, it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So, okay, now here's, here's a question, something to think about. What traditions, small t, do we have that are not required by God, but are permissible because they do not contradict the teaching and practice of Scripture, and they do not incorporate pagan doctrines and practices? Something to think about. There are things that our fellow Protestants, evangelicals, would be opposed to that we might do, um, and they're going to say, oh, that, that's not found in Scripture. And my response would be, um, it doesn't incorporate pagan practices, it doesn't contradict what Scripture clearly teaches, and therefore it's permissible. <coughs> that would be that would be my that would be my my conclusion of it. So when you go into, if you if you go to seminary or or, or you run into um, some um, more fundamentalist types, uh, they will have all kinds of problems with Presbyterians, particularly, and some of the things they do, our liturgy. Uh, and so forth, um, because they say we can't find a proof text for it in the in, in the Bible. So, anyhow, any questions? I know we we started late, so we're anyway. Alrighty, um, Tommy, would you mind closing the prayer? Okay, that's great. Father, thank you Lord, for allowing your teaching this morning. This help us, Lord, to um, understand through Scripture what you want us to do, that we might practice those things that are. Uh, acceptable to you. Thank you for air for your teaching and just uh, bless the time and the worship of Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.